This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Christ in the Old Testament. From the book of 1 Kings chapter 19, the first 18 verses. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Eliza had done and how he had killed all the prophets with this word. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Eliza to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Eliza was afraid and ran for his life. He came to Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. At the once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He would look around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank them and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled for forty days and forty nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Eliza? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Eliza heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Eliza? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with this word. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram, also anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha the son of Shaphat from Abel Meloha to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death anyone who escapes the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escapes the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve seven thousand in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Merciful God, in this moment of stillness, Wash us clean of our presumptions. Receive us as your weary children. And then by the power of your spirit, bless us with the word that revives. For we pray in the name of Jesus, your living word. Amen. 
So the passage which Elizabeth just read for us is one of the most mysterious, elusive, and compelling chapters in the Bible. And if this is a theophany, a revelation of God, it's a very unconventional one, even by scriptural standards. Because God is not in the wind. God is not in the earthquake. God is not in the fire. All these elements and symbols that God so often appears in in the Old Testament, he is absent from here. But after the fire comes a gentle whisper, a still, small voice. And only when he hears this barely audible sound does the prophet emerge from the cave, covering his face to meet with God. It's a cryptic and baffling story. And I'm not going to pretend that in 30 minutes you will understand this chapter any better than I do. But I'm realizing more and more that my task as a preacher is not to explain the mystery, but to invite you into it. Where we can't define, God invites us to celebrate and to participate as he reaches out to us to pull us in. I didn't get a chance to reference it in my sermon on Exodus a few weeks ago, but I want to talk for a minute about St. Gregory of Nyssa, a fourth century saint. He wrote a book called The Life of Moses. In the first half of the book, he covers kind of like the literal historical sense of the story of Moses told in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And then the second half of the book, he goes back over all the same territory and interprets it in an allegorical and mystical way as the journey of the soul up to God. And he's quite taken with Moses going up Mount Sinai. He notes very insightfully that there's three stages in Moses' life. He first encounters God in the light, in the burning bush. And then later on, when Moses takes the people out of Israel, he meets God in a mixed way of light and darkness. God is present in the daytime as a cloud of smoke and in the nighttime as a pillar of fire. And then toward the end, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, and there he encounters God in complete darkness. It's the very opposite that we would expect the journey of faith and encounter with God to be. It's not a journey from darkness to light, but a journey from light into the darkness. And St. Gregory asks, what does it mean that Moses entered the darkness and saw God in the darkness? He says, this is the seeing that consists in not seeing. Because that which is sought transcends all knowledge. Being separated on all sides by incomprehensibility as a kind of darkness. And the more we journey into knowing God, the less we know about him. And we begin to slowly realize that God transcends everything. He's beyond all human categories and capacities. And the best we can do is gesture towards God's essence. In fact, God transcends existence itself. Which is why some of the church fathers would make the very daring statement that God does not exist. God does not exist because he possesses such a fullness of being that what we say when we say something exists is so far below who God is. And unless we hold our concepts of God very loosely, they become idols 
that actually get in the way of us encountering God. You know, on Sinai, on Mount Sinai, back in the book of of Exodus, and Elijah's going to the very same mountain. Before Israel and Moses, God had revealed himself in wind and earthquake and fire. But now here in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah learns it's a mistake even to identify God with the most terrifying forces of creation. A mistake even to identify God with the ways that he has previously chosen to reveal himself. Instead, before Elijah, God reveals himself in the most minute and inward way. A still, small voice, a scarcely audible whisper, what the NRSV translates as the sound of absolute silence. I realize I'm groping for words here, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm not really sure I do either. I'm trying to describe what these much older Christians talked about as the mystical path to God, the arduous journey through the wilderness of repentance and up the mountain of divine knowledge. And I think that's something that we evangelicals need to be reminded of because especially if, like me, you were raised in a somewhat fundamentalist atmosphere which highly emphasized doctrine and rationality, and we spoke as though God could be contained and maybe even controlled by our definitions and our propositions. God is much greater than our theologies. Now, of course, we need to be careful of an opposite danger, right? A danger of a mysticism that loses connection with the narrative of Scripture and the revelation of God in Christ and turns into a kind of marijuana cloud of vague spiritual feelings. That's not what we're talking about today. This is a book deeply rooted in history and a long story of God wrestling and agonizing over his people. First Kings is the first of, of two volumes that describe the descent of God's chosen people Israel into apostasy and idolatry. These are two grim books. The grim story of cultural disintegration over four centuries and then collapse and annihilation. The book begins with the transition from King David, the man after God's own heart, to his son Solomon, the great King Solomon. God gives Solomon this divine gift of wisdom. David's son is set up in the best possible way, but Solomon's led astray by his woman. Not very many, only 700 wives and 300 concubines that he collects. And it's their foreign idolatry that turns his heart. And we begin to see cracks in the kingdom, cracks that after Solomon's death divide the kingdom in half. Judah to the south stays with the house of David and Israel to the north. The ten tribes go their own way. And the northern kingdom rots much faster than the southern ones. And the many assassinations and political turmoil we read about in chapter after chapter, the author makes clear these are not just the accidents of history. This is not just human politics. This is God's judgment on human evil on evil kings. And the very worst of the kings is King Ahab and his malevolent foreign consort, Jezebel. And these are tyrants who are working hard to replace the worship of the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, their lover and their redeemer with the foreign god, Baal, the Phoenician storm and fertility god. And God sends the prophet Elijah, who just suddenly emerges out of the pages of scripture, and he sends him to announce There's going to be no more dew and no more rain in the land except at God's word. 
And then Elijah goes into the wilderness. He's fed by a raven. And he only emerges for this cataclysmic confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. It's an epic public showdown before all the people of Israel. And King Ahab is there with 400 prophets of Baal. And Elijah is there all by himself, himself and the Lord God. And the challenge that Elijah lays out is let's both set up an altar. We're going to put an animal on the altar. And the one whose God sends down fire from heaven, that is the true God. And the 400 prophets spend most of the day praying and sweating and agonizing and pleading and crying out to their God, cutting themselves with knives and an act of sympathetic magic, and nothing happens. And then Elijah steps forward when they're done. He's mocking them, saying, well, perhaps your God is sleeping. Perhaps he's on the toilet. Perhaps his earbuds are in. He's not listening for some reason. Go on, keep on praying. And eventually Elijah steps forward. And before praying, he takes jugs of water and he soaks the sacrifice. So it's sopping wet. He wants to make it clear. There's no tricks involved. I will give this the absolute worst possible conditions and we'll see if the miracle happens. And then he prays a simple prayer for God to reveal himself. And the heavens are opened and there's a flash of lightning. And in a moment, the sacrifice is burnt up and consumed. And the people of Israel fall on their faces as one man exclaiming, The Lord, he is God. The existence and the power of God have been publicly, undeniably proven. And no one objects when Elijah takes the 400 prophets down to the creek and executes them. And then he goes up to the mountain. He prays for rain and a little cloud the size of a man's fist comes over the horizon from the Mediterranean. And then there is a torrential rain. And in the midst of the rainstorm, Elijah runs 25 kilometers in front of Ahab's chariot back to Jerusalem. The showdown on Mount Carmel must have been exhilarating for Elijah because here's a prophet who's longed and prayed and sought God for the repentance of Israel. He has no delight in being a prophet of judgment and condemnation. He is the voice of God who longs for his people to turn back to him And now it seems like revival has begun. There's a wind of repentance and the people have rejected their old God and seemingly turned back to their redeemer with their whole hearts. It seems like the long decline has been arrested. It seems like evil has been defeated once and for all. But it's not to be because Queen Jezebel, who's really an iron queen, isn't phased at all. She doesn't even blink. She sends a messenger to Elijah, in fact, with a death threat. And we're told that Elijah's afraid and he runs for his life. And he goes down from the far north of Israel, down through Judah, straight towards the wilderness, the abandoned land, as if he wants to escape not just the promised land, like he wants to get away from civilization itself. And he comes to this broom tree and he sits down under it and he prays that he might die. Please, God, just kill me now. And then he lays down under the bush and falls asleep, exhausted. You know, it's strange to me that almost every commentator and every preacher who seems to have ever tackled this passage, they all harshly rebuke Elijah for his depression. How could the prophet be so despairing, they ask? 
after experiencing God's power on Mount Carmel, after literally calling fire down from heaven. And they censure him and they rebuke him for self-pity and self-righteousness and for running from the will of God. I really hope those people aren't the ones to counsel me when I'm feeling down. Because they seem like the kind of Christians who would tell a depressed brother or sister, you know, your real problem is your unbelief. And I find it really striking that in this passage, despite all this censure and rebuke that Elijah gets from his commentators and preachers, that the one person who does not rebuke Elijah is God himself. There's no rebuke in here, except what we read into it ourselves. God cares for Elijah. He feeds him. He listens to him, speaks to him encourages him, and then freshly commissions him. And maybe, just maybe, we should be a little more hesitant to judge our fellow servants that God accepts. And really, why shouldn't Elijah have felt afraid? I mean, can we really judge someone who's seriously alarmed and disturbed by a phone call in the middle of the night from the secret police threatening them? You know, just because Elijah had been specially empowered by the Holy Spirit the day before to stand so fearlessly and confront the 400 prophets of Baal and the king doesn't mean that he's no longer a human being. As James chapter 5 reminds us, Elijah was a man just like us. But, you know, I really feel like Elijah's dejection, his depression, is about a lot more than his personal safety and his personal well-being seems like bitter disappointment that this newborn revival has been suffocated in the cradle, that the people's return to God now seems like it's shallow and superficial. And so the very height of Elijah's previous exaltation only plunges him deeper into the depths of discouragement. And it seems like the meaning of his entire life and his entire ministry, all of his labors and sacrifices and prayers are thrown into question. And he can no longer understand why he should press on. God sends an angel to wake Elijah up. Not with a rebuke, not to judge him, not to confront him. Only to say, hey, I cooked you some flatbread over these coals. And here's a jug of cold water at your head. Because God knows that his physically, emotionally, spiritually exhausted prophet does not need rebuke or judgment right now. He needs bodily care, food, drink, sleep. And then hours later, the messenger of God wakes Elijah up again. and says, eat again. You're going to need it because you're going on a long journey. You're not at the end of the road. God has an appointment to meet up with you somewhere. And Elijah eats and he drinks. And on the strength of that food and drink, he travels in a straight line, 40 days and 40 nights, echoing, of course, the journey of the people of Israel until he arrives at Horeb, the mountain of God, the mountain we know as Sinai. And there on that mountain, Elijah goes into a cave. The Hebrew actually says the cave, perhaps the very same cleft in the rock that God had placed Moses in when he caused all his glory to pass by. And then a question for Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? We shouldn't read that as an implied rebuke. I don't think there's an edge, sarcastic edge to this question. It's a neutral, open question. What are you doing here, Elijah? It's not like God doesn't know the answer to every question he asks. But notice how God, even before speaking, before announcing, before declaring, God takes the time to ask a question 
and to listen as his prophet unburdens himself. I've been working my heart out for the God of the angel armies, Elijah says. The people of Israel have abandoned your covenant. They've destroyed the places of worship. They've murdered your prophets. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. Again, I don't think we should read that as self-pity or self-righteousness. It's a plain statement of the facts so far as Elijah knows. And then he's told, Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Elijah is not being judged. He's being honored as no one but Moses had been honored with a theophany, with a revelation from God. Just like that prophet of old who stood on this very same mountain, distressed at the rebellion and idolatry of the covenant-breaking nation below him. And God is going to give Elijah an experience of his presence that will make all his fear vanish away, that will make him forget all his questions, that will fill his heart with glory beyond words. Yes, Elijah was the one who had to journey through the wilderness and to ascend the mountain, but he's not the one who can generate this experience. This is God reaching down to him. He's being given the gift of the manifestation of a God who is wild, untamable, and free. And so Elijah waits. And a hurricane wind rips through the mountains and it shatters the rocks before God. A terrifying explosion of power. But God was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake comes. But God wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. God wasn't in the fire. You know, all these manifestations of the elemental destructive forces of creation must have terrified Elijah because he retreats back into his cave. And I imagine him pressing against the back wall as the blast of wind sucks the air from his lungs and as the very roots of the mountain shake and surge and the sheet of flame roars at the mouth of the cave. And somehow, despite all the power and all the terror, somehow Elijah knows God is not in this wind. God is not in this earthquake. God is not in this fire. The wind, the earthquake, and the fire obviously are all sent from God. But God himself is not present in them. Now in the Old Testament, God often revealed himself in these very signs. At Mount Carmel, Elijah had seen God reveal himself in fire from heaven. And you know, the pagans thought that wind and fire and earthquake were the chariots of their false gods. And God frequently in the Old Testament likes to demonstrate, I can easily beat you at your own game. These belong to me. They are my creations and my possessions, not yours. But there is a danger in doing that. That Israel and even Elijah might imagine that God is on the same scale as the false gods, like Baal, only much further along it. As though we could take our crude human conceptions of power and might and glory and just multiply them by a really big number and say that is the Lord God of Israel. God's not on that scale at all. He's not in a category with anything else, certainly not the false gods of the nations. And after the fire comes a gentle whisper, the stirring of a little breeze that can barely be felt. 
the sound of minute stillness. And Elijah somehow immediately recognizes here at last is God himself. And when he hears this barely audible sound, he pulls his cloak over his face so as not to see God and die, and he emerges from his crack in the rock. You'll notice if you stare at this text long enough that the experiences of awesome, violent power are not able to draw Elijah out of the cave. They only push him deeper inside it. Only this mere breath, this very image of gentleness and quiet benevolence, is strong enough to draw this man out before the presence of God. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And this encounter, which is told so compactly, which you only have the most tantalizing hints of description, is a restoring experience for Elijah. His complaints, his doubts, his questions, his discouragement no longer matter. And he's commissioned for great new tasks from God. It's a very tender expression of care for his prophet. But even more so, more importantly, the story speaks to God's relationship with his people Israel. First and second Kings are long, depressing books. And if you sit down and read through them, you'll feel impatient. And I think it's good you feel that way. Because it speaks to God's own incredible patience with his continually strained, continually promising and betraying people. As you read this long story of decline, Israel and then Judah swirling around the drain, you wonder why God put up with so much evil for so long. God, at any moment, could have wiped out his people in a flash of righteous wrath. Tempest, earthquake, fire. But as powerful as those manifestations are, they're manifestations of God that can only bring death. And God is more than those things. The Old Testament continually describes God as a betrayed husband, holding out his hands to his adulterous bride and pleading with them, Return to me, O Israel, return. As God holds out his hand to every wandering and rebellious human being. It's the still, small voice of love. A barely audible whisper that invites a free response of our love. A love that can be drawn forth, but by its very nature, never compelled. You know, the wind and the earthquake and the fire of Mount Sinai, they were irresistible but only in judgment. The still, small voice of God, so quiet and seemingly so weak, of course can be and usually is resisted. The still, small voice can be ignored, suppressed, shouted down. But there are some people who maybe even unawares have been sent on a journey by God through the wilderness and up the mountain, who found a place of solitude and silence, who were able to listen 
to hear the whisper of the voice of God saying, I love you. All is forgiven. Come home. It's the persuasion of love, which is irresistible in its own way. And then in a way that Elijah never could have imagined, this gentle whisper centuries later comes into the world as a human being, is birthed as a baby. The word becomes flesh, and the glory of the Lord dwells among us, but in the most quiet and unobtrusive way. He did not raise his voice in the streets. He did not shout a bruised reed. He did not break the smoldering wick. He did not quench. Jesus of Nazareth was the still small voice of divine love. The barely audible sound that could be and was resisted, ignored, shouted down, and in the end, silenced in death. And really, mysterious as Sinai is, Calvary is even more mysterious of the God who becomes flesh and dies in weakness. And in the darkness of the cross, in the darkness, we perceive the very majesty of the Lord. And in the silence of the one who goes to to the slaughter without speaking, we hear the Father's voice. Return to me, my people. I love you. All is forgiven. Come out of your cave where you are hiding and step into my presence. We have no terrifying displays of divine power to offer you this afternoon. Sometimes we imagine that if we had these signs and wonders, surely people would be convinced Surely they would repent. Surely they would believe. But as our Lord himself told us, even if someone were to come back from the dead, they would still not believe because the human heart is hard and evil. All we have today is the weakness of the message of the cross. That word that is foolish to men, yet somehow is the very power of God. And the only weapon we have as the people of God as God's prophets and messengers, is this little, minute, barely audible word of the gospel. Could anything be more feeble than the word of the gospel? Yet strangely, it's here, in this word, in this message, in this revelation, where God is present. And nowhere else, this still small voice This scarcely audible sound, this gentle whisper of divine love that is Christ himself. Let's pray and ask the Lord God to speak this word into our own hearts. Heavenly Father, God of holiness and majesty, God of mysterious darkness far beyond our comprehension, we bow before you and we ask that you would silence our own hearts in your presence that we might hear the still, small voice, the sound of minute silence, the gentle whisper of your love. We pray that this weak yet powerful word of the gospel of your son Jesus would melt and soften our hearts, and that we would hear this word as a word of life, of resurrection, as a word of glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.